Welcome to Good Morning, the podcast on a mission to open up the conversation around grief and loss with honesty and humour. Hosted by Sally and Imogen, we interview interesting guests to hear how losses shape their lives. Join us as we laugh, cry and drop the odd F-bomb. Welcome back to the Good Morning Podcast. Hi guys and hi Sal. I'm actually sitting next to you for the first time in a while. Such a treat. What a treat. <laughs> in the same room. I know. How are you? Good. All the better for seeing you. Oh, let's talk about last night. Let's. <laughs> <laughs> so guys, as you will know, recently it was my mum's second year death anniversary, or whatever you want to call it. And Sal is also the queen of gift giving, sentimental, thoughtful gifts. And she bought me tickets to see a Joni Mitchell, Joni Mitchell tribute band, which was playing literally down the road from my house. And so we went to that last night, didn't we? We did. It was so nice. It was, is it weird to buy you like a gift <laughs> on the death anniversary day? I feel like it's a, it's fine to do that, isn't it? I think it? it's very lovely. Griefy things. Yeah, very lovely. But it was just us and a bunch of old people, me crying up the back uncontrollably <laughs> the whole time. Every time a song came on, that was like one of my mom's favorite songs, I'm like grabbing Sal's arm. <laughs> we so. had a few Margies to get, get prepped, didn't we? We did. And I've got a little bit of a hangover today. <laughs> So bear with us. <laughs> That's what we've been up to, crying up the back of theatres. <laughs> Grief sesh on tour. Grief sesh on tour, yeah. But you felt it was nice to feel connected to your mum, wasn't it, through the music? and Yeah, because we were we had dinner prior to that and we were chatting about how we just feel like we're in a bit of a phase at the moment where we're not crying as much. We feel a little bit numb. Like the grief is obviously still there, but it's not as raw and like I think we're so busy that we haven't like set aside time to connect with our mums, which is something that we preach on the podcast all the time to do. So I feel like it was a really nice way of feeling her and connecting with her through the music that she loved and understanding like the lyrics and just, yeah, feeling a little bit of her, which I haven't been allowing myself to do lately because we've been so busy it's like that reel that we did recently like I know I've got to do it but I just don't have time I've got to do it I know I've got to do it but I really don't want to do it yeah I am my friend B is training to be a Reiki um healer and so she did a distant healing on on me recently and I know she did one for you didn't she yeah and I was saying to her like I feel like I haven't had the chance to really like stop and connect with my mum for a while Mm. and then as soon as the healing session started like the tears just it just it just all came out and I was like I really needed that release but I think when life gets busy it's almost like you just think I'll do it I'll do it later you know I'll connect I'll 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 schedule some time to have a grief (laughs) session later schedule some time to cry so that was my evening Sal you're in the middle of moving house there's been some griefy dilemmas this week fill us in there have been loads of griefy (laughs) dilemmas on my end so we post I posted something on Instagram basically when I'm like moving I'm clearing out all the cupboards as you do getting rid of stuff and there's this packet of tea bags (laughs) that my mum bought me when she was last in Australia and that was the last time I saw her and I remember she went to the shop and bought the tea bags and I've kept them in my cupboard ever since and I've gone to like throw them away over like the over the years and I'm like no no I I need to keep them because they're kind of one of the last things that she ever bought me Mm. and so I had a real dilemma because I was like they're a packet of tea bags I don't use them because they're not they're not the brand that I use and they're quite old now so I wouldn't necessarily use them to make a cup of tea there's something that my mum bought me. Mm. So I was like, I don't know what to do. Do I throw them out? Do I keep them? So I, I put it to you guys on Instagram and you had some amazing ideas, actually. There were some lovely like ideas coming through, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, like frame it or like create some artwork with it. There were some really great ideas. So thank you to everyone who took the time to reply because I really, really appreciated the thoughts. But I've decided to keep them. But it's one of those things. It's like a griefy. <laughs> I think people will understand when you're in grief, like the smallest thing that remind you of them it's really Mm. hard to let go and like I'm like surely I can't keep these tea bags forever but I'm like well maybe I can why not yeah why not and then we were on zoom um later in the week oh gosh and I can't remember how we were just talking about ashes for some reason and then (laughs) because that's just what we talk about on a daily basis 
great, great chat over here, guys. Yeah. And, and I, um, I was like, actually, where are my mum's ashes? I don't know. I haven't seen them for ages. Oh my God. And then, you know, when you get that like panic, I was like, actually, where are they? I was watching it in real time. It was pe- petrifying. Yeah. And then I was like to my husband, where do you know where the ashes are? Can you remember? Because I know I'd moved them. I decided to put them by my bed. And then I was like, no, I'm going to move them. I'm going to put put them somewhere else. And they're normally behind a picture of her. So I went and had a look and they weren't there. And I'm thinking, oh my God, where are they? Have I lost them? Mom, I lost where are you? Ashes. <laughs> like, and then, and then I had a little look and they were, I'd moved them like behind another picture. So few, but I really, I was like, my heart dropped like, for a second there mine too and we had some messages from you guys as well sharing your ashes stories there's quite a few so we actually think we're going to dedicate an episode to what not to do with ashes and scattering ashes because I think there's some very very funny stories floating around out there definitely but yes don't misplace those on the move please I they are coming with me they're in my handbag I'll be doing that right now no okay Yeah, I just thought I'd bring her for the bring trip. Your, bring your mum to Joni last night. <laughs> oh, and we've got to talk about the signs. Okay, so Sal was like, ask ask your mum for a sign. It's going to be a very symbolic evening. Like, do it. So that day I was kind of meditating on what it should be. And I just kept having like star, star come into my head. I was like, okay, star or rising star or shooting star, whatever. And then pretty much like every single fucking song of Joni Mitchell has star in it, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> like, okay, I get it now, mum. But the main one was like, so the, the main song that like makes me think of her as a case of you. And in it, she says, I'm your northern star or something. Star. I'm your north star. And I was like, oh, okay, got it. Yeah. Yeah. There's me sign. There's your sign. Yeah. I asked for a, p- a pink turtle. <laughs> Haven't seen it yet. We're still waiting for this pink turtle. I've been looking at all Emma's daughter's <laughs> toys, like, where's this pink turtle then? But <laughs> I might see it on the journey home. I'll let you know. Yeah. Oh, but yeah, it was it was a it was a lovely evening. Um, but guys, Sal, who are we talking to today? So a very special guest today. We are talking to David Kessler, who is the godfather of grief. Literally. (laughs) (laughs) Many of you guys probably have heard of David. He's actually one of the world leading experts on grief and loss, and he's done such amazing work in the grief space. Um, And he's also founded grief.com, which has so many helpful grief courses. His tender hearts course is actually one I did after my mom died. Yes. I remember you saying that. And his book, Finding Meaning, was actually one of the first books that we both picked up after our mums died I think it's like such a seminal piece of work and just absolutely brilliant yeah and he also co-authored books with his mentor Elizabeth Kubler-Ross no big deal so she is huge in the grief space she's written so many amazing books on death and dying and so she actually came up with the five stages of grief so many of you will have heard of the five stages of grief as it's often one of the first things that you do hear about when you are grieving you know doing the old google search like will I ever feel normal again here are the five stages um so they are denial anger bargaining depression and acceptance it's kind of one of the first things I think when you're in that grief Google kind of rabbit hole the five stages is probably one of the first things that most of us have come across and he really sheds light on what the five stages were actually intended to be for and he breaks down some myths which was super interesting yeah and David also lost his son to addiction in 2016 and we talk about the feelings of shame and guilt that can often come with losing someone this way and you know which is the same with suicide a lot of those same Mm. feelings can come up Um, so it is really useful for anyone who is you know dealing with the loss of addiction or suicide and we also talk about how to cope when you're grieving in a different way from others and how we grieve differently when we've had say in a strange relationship with the person who died and yeah Mm. very fascinating and we talk a lot about what meaning is in grief which we did a little snippet on social um, which really seemed to resonate with you all from our up close and griefy episode around the fact that actually meaning can be really simple you do not have to create something massive like a podcast (laughs) out of your loss like so we really talked to David about like what meaning really means um which I think will resonate with a lot of you guys and we also get a little bit of science chat in which we know you all love we do so yeah David not only lost his 
son, but he he also went through the loss of his mum when he was a young boy. And there's some just really interesting, fascinating science chat that we got out of him, which I love. Guys, before we jump into today's convo, don't forget to subscribe to Good Morning so you get every single new episode as soon as it's released. And if you could leave us a little cheeky rating or review, if you enjoy the pod, that would be so appreciated. Ladies and gents, David Kessler, the godfather of grief. Enjoy, guys. So, David, you are one of the world's leading experts on grief and loss, and you've done so much amazing work in the space. Im and I actually have nicknamed you the godfather of grief. <laughs> we have. And your book, Finding Meaning, was actually one of the very first books that Im and I picked up after our mums passed away. So to say that we feel incredibly honoured to have you joining us today is an understatement. Oh, well, I'm so glad to be with both of you. And, uh, you know, when people talk about all that I know about grief, I remind them that all that I know, I have learned from people in grief. So sometimes I feel like just a recycler, but uh, it's good information. And I'm privileged to have sat with people and passed their information on. It absolutely is. It's excellent information and there is absolutely no way when your book arrived on our doorstep when we were fresh in our grief that we would think that we would have this opportunity to sit down and talk to you about all things grief and your incredible book. Um, So yeah, we feel so lucky to have this opportunity and I think like you, Sal and I really struggled with the thought of the death of our mums being meaningless. And I think we were both really determined to try and find some sort of meaning in our loss. And your book really helped us kind of understand the process and the importance of doing so. So thank you for putting that into the world. It has made a huge impact in our lives and also the lives of many of our listeners. Oh, well, thank you so much. The one thing I wish sometimes I could change, I it's, it's a great title, Finding Meaning, but there's a lot of people who look at Finding Meaning and go, I don't want to look at the silver lining. Mm. And I try to tell people, the book is 99% how to excavate your pain so that you find the meaning. It's certainly not, let's cover up the pain and pretend everything's fine. Yes, exactly right. And sort of before we get stuck into that stage, Um, We'd like to just touch on the five stages of grief that were identified by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, which are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And I think what some people may not realise is that these stages were actually observed in people at the end of their life. Um, And you worked with Elizabeth on adapting these stages for grief. And there's been some sort of misinterpretation that these are meant to be experienced on a linear timeline, haven't there? But they were never intended to be prescriptive, were they? No, I think that was one of the big challenges of Elizabeth's work is that people kept wanting to reduce her work to five words and it frustrated her so much because as anyone who's been through grief knows there's no five easy steps to it or five easy stages. There's nothing like that there. And it was frustrating for me to tell her over the years and we would have many discussions about Elizabeth, people are adapting your stages for grief and by the way some not doing it well (laughs) so we wanted to write on grief and grieving to clear some of that up and literally on page one we say they're not linear there's no map for grief there is no one grief model our grief is as unique as our fingerprint there's just a million ways to grieve and Still, people want to go, oh, you know, sometimes like in my Facebook, someone will go, you and Kubler-Ross are just trying to neaten up our grief and make us follow your rules. <laughs> and Elizabeth was such a rule breaker that I thought, oh, that couldn't be further from the truth. So I understand her frustration. And, you know, the other piece of that is that acceptance took on a finality that we never intended. People went, oh, I'm finding acceptance, I'm done. And, you know, when people ask me, how long will my, how long is my wife, my sister, my brother, my husband, my neighbor going to grieve? I always say, well, how long is a person gonna be dead? Because if they're gonna be dead for a long time, you're gonna grieve for a long time. Doesn't mean you'll always grieve with pain. 
you may in time grieve with love, I hope, with support. But there was this sense of, oh, acceptance, I'm done. And that's just not the way we ever intended it. And I think we, Sal and I, we've both felt every single one of those stages really strongly, like even on the weekend. So I'm in year two of my loss now, but like I was back at depression, you know, and I thought I'd sort of <laughs> gone past that and was in a really strong place. But, you know, they keep coming back and catches you by surprise. I think it's, yeah, it's not a kind of final, acceptance isn't kind of a final stage where we get over our loss at all, is it? And I can do the stages, all of them in an hour. Yes. <laughs> you go through that an hour, you know, and then I start right over again. So true. And David, you've known grief and trauma from an early age. When you were 13, your mum died, and you also witnessed one of the first mass shootings in the US. That's a lot. How did you cope with grief and trauma so early on in life, and how did that shape your work? I think I didn't cope well. And I was searching for someone who could have helped me. And, you know, in some ways I say I, I might have become the person that could have helped me. Um, I, I wanted to find some way. And I remember when I was young, thinking I would be damaged forever. Yeah. And I think that really brought me to this work. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's also strange. One of the the moments that I had that was so connected to that was, as I wrote about, uh, President Biden called me after his son had died, and he was public about this, obviously. And uh, when we were talking, people think about his son's death and don't realize that he's had many deaths in his life, starting with his um, daughter and his wife when he began his political career. And when he and I were talking, I told him about that shooting and he realized after his wife and daughter died, his first act of business in Congress was dealing with the shooting from my childhood. Wow. So it's strange that that's been a full circle moment and obviously you know, you have the gun situation down better than we do. I mean, that's such a nightmare here. And uh, to think about 45 years ago was that mass shooting and, you know, still that's going on today here. And there was another full circle moment for you, wasn't there in your book? Um, there's a story that you tell about a tour that you went on, I think it was in 2015, and you coincidentally ended up being booked at that same hotel where the shooting happened. Am I right in saying that? Right, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And, and they asked me when I said, oh my gosh, this is the shooting from my childhood. They said, well, we'll move you. And I went, no, I, I think it's meant to be. Let me go back. And it was a fascinating moment that I was in this hotel talking to the employees going, you know, there was a shooting and they're like, no, there wasn't. And I'm like, yes, there was. I was here. And they were like, we're not supposed to talk about it. Oh. I thought, well, isn't that grief? We're not supposed to talk about it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So they knew about it, but they were instructed to not talk about what happened there. Oh, that is exactly, that is exactly grief, isn't it? <laughs> it is, it is. And David, during that particular trip, you actually had quite an interesting sign story, didn't you? Tell us a little bit more about that. You know, when it comes to signs, I'm, I'm very much, uh, I call myself like an open skeptic. And it takes a lot to convince me, like, you know, I need more than a bird or a leaf. I, you know, I need like a knock at my door practically. And and so when I went back to that hospital, it was condemned because it had closed after Hurricane Katrina. And you had to go upstairs in another part of the building. And we had to then go in, cross over to the main building and walk downstairs. And we walked through this hospital, like a closed hospital is a pretty eerie place. Mm. And they had the emergency room, they had the emergency lights on. So only the exit signs were lit up. Um, you would see dangling lights, there was debris on the floor. 
there'd be an empty nursing station. All the beds were taken out. All the chairs were taken out. It's like what you see in the movies, like the abandoned it hospitals. Was, it yeah. was like what you exactly right. And so I walked through this, you know, dark abandoned nursing station, all see all these rooms on the 10th floor and then the ninth floor, the same thing and the eighth floor. And then got to the floor that she was on and the head of security said to me, uh, well, these are the doors to the intensive care unit. It was so strange because it was still the same doors I had stood at mm -hmm. when I was a child not being able to get in. And so I said, oh my gosh, I could never walk through these doors. And he goes, well, you can now. And I walk in and the place where her bed would have been, the call light was flashing green. Now, wow. there, there was no more like cord and button. It was literally just the light flashing green. And I immediately went, it's just a call light flashing green over the bed that she happened to be in. <laughs> in an abandoned hospital with no electricity. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know. Yeah, no big deal. No big Except deal. Can you? <laughs> and then I went through it and I went, oh, I wonder, did he know which bed she was in? And then I thought, these are hospital records that 45 years ago, so long destroyed. No one would know what bed she's in besides me. Then I thought about, there's not even a way to turn it off. Like there was no button and it's flashing green. And I began to think, cause, and here's the thing. I began to stand where I had stood when I was 13, where the bed would have been. I only got to see her a few times. Mm -hmm. And I stood there and I thought about what green means. Green means go. Green means safety. Green also means there's a lot of things when you complete them, you get a green light. Also here, when you go to the doctor's office, when you're ready to be seen, they turn the light green. And so I thought, you know, what does this mean? If this is such a power place on earth for me, was it for her? Is, is she here meeting me? Is it her telling me maybe I'm complete, maybe it's okay. Whatever it was, it was so powerful. And like I said, it was hard to deny that I'd been through all these other floors with no flashing green lights. Yeah, that's amazing that you that you got that. And it's so significant. I love kind of like all the, the meaning that you're able to find behind that. And there's a line in your book, which I think is like the absolute ultimate goal in grief. And you said... I could remember my mother with more love than pain and I was no longer a victim to my loss. And I think it was around that time. And I thought, wow, that's so powerful and, and what an amazing kind of experience to have. Well, I had been so victimized by it and so mm -hmm. abandoned. And now I stood there not as a victim, but as a victor. Mm. Yes. Yes. And you also say in your book that healing doesn't mean that loss didn't happen it just means that it no longer controls us and that really resonated with us because I think that sometimes when we have those moments where we feel like we're just inching towards a place of feeling healed we can also fear that because we worry that it means that we don't care about our loved one anymore yeah somehow we get the notion that we don't care or that healing means you've forgotten or you moved on yes I think we move on I you know I always say we don't recover from grief. Your loved ones weren't a cold or a flu that you get over them. You move forward with them. So true. And David, you wrote Finding Meaning around the time that your 21-year-old son, David, unexpectedly died. And you said that you refused to allow his death to be meaningless and that finding acceptance just wasn't enough for you. And that's something that Sal and I can really relate to. Can you talk us through that time and how you came to identify that sixth and official stage of grief, which is finding meaning? Sure. I, I was literally at this desk. I had canceled all my events, lectures, and I had been sitting around just in brutal pain after he had died. And then I don't know, maybe a couple of months later, I was out here 
And I had written prior a couple of chapters about meaning and grief, because a lot of time bereaved parents would say to me, oh, I don't like Viktor Frankl's work about finding meaning that, you know, he lived. And I thought, what's the connection with his work, which was so brilliant, and grief, meaning and grief, how do they go together? And I tried to write and figure it out like a puzzle. And so one day I picked up those chapters and I remember looking at them going, yeah, like that's gonna help. And I threw them down. And then about a week later, I picked it up and I started reading about meaning and it didn't take away the pain, but it began to give it a little cushion. And I think one of the confusing things about meaning is people think I'm saying there's meaning in the death. There's no meaning in a horrible child, a horrible death of a child or a murder or a loved one dying from cancer or a horrible accident. There's no meaning in that. Meaning is what we do later. Yes. Meaning is in us. It's not in the loss, is it? Not in the loss. It's in us later. And so that's what was so powerful for me. And I began to, I wanted to talk to people who had had a spouse die, who had had a parent die, who had a sibling die, people who had gone through tragedies and, you know, death of children. I'm like, how do they find the light in the darkness? And it was interesting as I began writing and talking to people, people go, you know, that's the sixth stage. And then I was so touched when the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross family and foundation gave me permission to add a stage to her iconic stages. And it was one more chance to go back and say to everyone, they're not linear. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it isn't in the loss. And I think Sal and I, what we've created with Good Morning is definitely our meaning from, from, right, right. from our loss. So it's what we've chosen to do with it. And I think... It, you know, we threw ourselves so quickly into this podcast. I think we recorded the first episode. I was at six months, Sal was at eight months into her loss. And I think people thought, God, these girls are crazy like for doing this. But it helped us so much in, in ways that I can't even understand. Right. And that's, you know, when I literally finished the book right here, I burst into tears and I thought, I hope it helps other people as much as it helped me. And I'm sure you two probably feel the same way with the podcast sometimes. Absolutely. And mm -hmm. like you say, it doesn't take away the pain of their death, but it is like a cushion. Like we have found doing this to be so helpful for us to process our grief as well. And something interesting that you say, David, in the book is that if we allow ourselves to move fully into the sixth stage, it will allow us to transform our grief into something else, something rich and something fulfilling. But importantly, you've also said, and I think this one is really, really important for listeners, is that meaning making doesn't always have to be something like starting a charity or starting a podcast. I think sometimes people can think, well, how do I find meaning in a simple way? You know, I don't have the energy, the capacity to do something like, you know, writing a book or something big. So what are the ways that people can find meaning from loss that are maybe a little bit smaller, but still important? That's such a good point, because I think people do go, oh, I've got to do something monumental. And here's the secret. Grief is found in the moments of meaning. Like we have to learn to label moments as meaningful. This moment is meaningful to me. Someone in Australia in a city that I may never visit is in pain and they're going to hear this and it won't take away their pain, but it might ease it just a little bit. And that makes this moment meaningful to me. I tell the story in the book about a woman who goes and buys stamps. And it turns out there's a stamp of uh, a, a TV show that she watched as a child. And it reminded her of her father. And she just uses them as stamps. She didn't frame them or do anything special with them. But now when she has to send off a letter, she has this sweet moment of remembering her father. So it's about 
finding those just meaningful moments and naming the moments around us meaningful like this one. Mm, I love that. And I think sometimes people might think that they can't find any meaning in their loss. So that is a really great example, but it doesn't have to be anything profound. It can just be really small everyday moments and that can be the meaning. I love that. And there was a woman that I remember talking to when her child had died. And I think her child had died or two years old and it was just so horrible. And she was telling me about her child and all about him and what he was like. And then, you know, at the end, we'd spent probably a couple hours together and she said, there's no meaning. And I said to her, I find meaning. These moments you've been telling me about your son, these are meaningful to me. Mm. Meaning in this moment. So I think we need to just sort of notice the meaning around us that we can find that we often overlook. Telling a story about our loved one can be meaningful. Yes, and all of these things are so incredibly healing and so helpful. And I think, you know, that's that's what Sal and I have taken away from the podcast is just talking about our mums and having that space and that platform where we can, you know, allow other people to to share their stories. Like it, it is, it's so meaningful to us and it kind of keeps our connection with them alive and keeps the relationship with them in some form. Right. And I'm sure, you know, if someone's listening for the first time, because I know you've covered this before, that there's this myth that people in grief don't mention our loved ones. We don't want them mentioned. You're going to upset us. We're going to get mad at you. Yes. The opposite is true. I want to tell you about my son, David. I want to tell you about my parents, my nephew. It's like, you know, that's, that's part of how I keep them alive. And once in a while, someone will say to me, David, I took your advice. And I asked my friend about her parent or her loved one. And she started crying. I made her cry. And I'll go, no, you didn't. She was crying somewhere already. Yes. You just just became a safe person for her to cry with finally. She now knew she could cry with you. That's the thing is we're, we're thinking about them all the time anyway. They're such a big part of our lives. Like people think, I don't want to remind them that their loved one has died. It's like, it's it's on our radar anyway. And it's so refreshing and nice to kind of hear their name and be able to talk about them. And I think people just aren't good at talking about grief, are they? People just, society grief, doesn't make room for it. It's a grief illiterate world, boy. And you know, the truth is what we avoid pursues us. And what we face transforms us. And, you know, we we can run from it, but we can't hide. Yes. And that that just reminded me of something that is in your work. You teach that pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. Can you talk us through those differences? Sure. So... There's the pain of a loved one dying. Your, your, your mom's dying. I, I can't take away that pain. The, the pain is part of the love. I, I need to give you the dignity of that pain. I can never take the pain away. Yeah. Suffering is what our crazy minds do. It's the noise in our mind. It's the self-chatter. It's the inner critic. It's the saboteur. It's the, the, the voice that's going, oh, it's your fault. Or if you wouldn't have done that, or if something would have been different, they'd still be alive or just the cruelty that we say to ourselves. So I can't help people with their pain, but you know, you watch people, I do an online group and you watch people suddenly release their suffering and they change completely that they realize how they've been punishing themselves. Yes. And I think guilt can play a big role in that content. I know it's something that I've struggled with. Like sometimes I catch myself and the thoughts that I'm telling myself, you know, after my mom died, she died by suicide. So it's, it's quite complicated, obviously, but yeah, it is that it's, it's, it is the things that we tell ourselves, isn't it? That, that kind of keep us in stuck in that place of, of suffering. And to realize, you know, the old way of thinking was 
she made a choice, what a selfish act, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Now we know that that is an illness of our mind and it progresses like other illness. And you know, if I change my plans right before someone with cancer, you know, dies, it wasn't because of my plans. It's the same when we die from an illness in our mind. It's not because of what the other people are doing around us. It's because of the illness. It's because of the faulty wiring that's happening in our mind. That happens with addiction. It happens with mental illness and mental challenges. And, you know, it's interesting. We were talking before. I just came back from a, a, a trip overseas, multiple countries, we changed plans a lot. We forget in our everyday life, we change plans. Oh, I was coming over tonight, I'm not. We're do I mean, we're always changing plans. When someone dies, we go, if only I hadn't changed plans. Mm. Yeah, no, changing plans isn't the reason someone dies. This leads me on to ask a question from one of our listeners who lost her son to addiction, which we know is a topic that's really close to your heart, David. And she wants to know, how can she stop herself from blaming herself and not being able to look after him and not being there for him as much as she wished she could be? Well, I talk about the three C's. Mm -hmm. She couldn't control it. She didn't cause it and she couldn't cure it. You know, and sometimes I'll say to gently to people, oh, you think if you would have done something different, you could have saved them? Yes. I'll go, oh, let's, let's get you to some 12-step meetings because there's a lot of people to save. And they begin <laughs> to realize how ridiculous it is that we think we can save people. You know, I, I say the same thing about mental illness and death by suicide. You think you could have prevented death by suicide? You think you could have changed their mental illness? Oh my goodness. If you have that kind of power, we got to get you out there saving people. <laughs> so true. So true. And I think there is like in said, like so much guilt that, that we carry when we lose a loved one to suicide or to addiction. And we play the blame game with ourselves. And there's a lot of shame that we carry around with that as well. It causes us to feel a lot of pain and shame. And it's interesting that uh, in my group, in the Tender Hearts group, there's be so many times someone will just be telling us they're going to share something so shameful that we're all going to be shocked at the horrible thing they did that caused their loved one to die. And you know, shame needs secrecy to survive. You need to keep it a secret. If you tell it to everyone online in a group, all of a sudden everyone's like, oh yeah, I do that all the time. <laughs> yeah. And everyone goes, oh, I thought I was the only one. Shame needs to trick you into thinking you're the only one. And you know, guilt is the companion of grief. We'd always rather feel guilty. Our mind would always rather feel guilty than helpless. I don't like to live in a world where people can just die out of control. I don't like that. I want to pretend like, oh, if I would have done this one thing, my son would still be alive. Oh, I can control the world if I can pin it down to one thing. The truth is it's not. It is so true. It's our mind's way of, like you said, like trying to gain some control back in a very unpredictable world where bad things just happen. Yeah. So, so challenging. And guilt is normal. Guilt is normal. Unfortunately, shame happens all too often. Mm. It just does. It happens. 
I was, uh, I actually did your tender hearts course early on in my grief and I found it so helpful. And the forum that you spoke about, like there, there's a room there for people who had experienced suicide loss specifically. And, and like you said, people were just writing things straight out of my brain. And I felt like, oh my God, like I am not the only one because you can feel so isolated when you're grieving, like you are the only one experiencing what you are. And it's something that we've noticed as well with our uh, grief community community just how helpful it is to just say whatever it is that you're thinking and feeling and 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 people feel really seen and validated I think well and that's why when we go into groups and it's one big group as you know and then many time we split off into groups for people who have had a spouse die or a child die or a parent or a sibling or death by suicide or addiction or accident and all kinds of different things what's fascinating is that And it's why I love group work. Like when I'm working one-on-one with someone, if they're like, yes, but, yes, but, I'm like, okay, fine. But what happens in a group is you'll see someone who's in a situation similar to yours, not just like yours, but similar. And you'll go, wow, look how they're blaming themselves. Mm. If they're doing that, it's not true about them. But if it's not true about them, then it's not true about me. And that's why I love group work, because one, we find ourselves in each other's stories. And when one person begins to heal, everyone does. Yes. And that's why it's so important to talk about grief, because when you do open up and talk about what's going on for you, you see yourself in other people and then that in turn can help you process what's going on for you but I think in society you know we shy away from talking about it openly and then people are sitting you know on their own thinking that they're the only ones experiencing certain things heavy things like guilt like shame like you know jealousy even anger and um it's yeah it's amazing the work that you do because you are allowing people to open up and and heal in a sense by connecting with others. Well, and right back at you both. And, you know, (laughs) just the idea that you're mentioning jealousy, people, you know, you think I'm the only one jealous of people on Instagram or people on Facebook who have happy families where everyone's alive. And it's like, no, jealousy is part of grief. It's part of grief. It comes up. And it's so good to normalize all of these things too. Um, And it leads me into the next question is we really wanted to talk about different grieving styles with you, particularly in family dynamics. And we have had a lot of our listeners who have experienced um, family members coping with grief very differently to how they have. And I think they felt like they were abnormal or there was something wrong with them. And it can sometimes cause a bit of conflict, I think. And what can people do to help themselves in situations where everyone is grieving differently? The first thing I think is to realize we actually all grieve differently because we all had different relationships. Mm. Even if it was your parent, you had a different relationship than your sister or brother. So you're going to have a different grief. So then we realize everyone's relationship is unique. So everyone's grief is unique. Then we also have grieving styles. You know, some of us are real feelings, talking about it. Oh my goodness, that helps us so much. Others of us are doers, type A's, practical grievers. (laughs) I'm laughing. I'm laughing because this is Sal and I to an absolute T. We've identified that I'm an intuitive griever and Sal's a What's instrumental the other one? grief instrumental grief <laughs> yeah yeah i am know, so physical and i'm so i'm more emotional. emotional and you know i was thinking about uh you know siblings that i remember their sister had died and one person said i've done this i've handled this i've done that i've done that what have you done and the other person said i've grieved that's what i'm doing i'm grieving You know, so we all do it so differently. And the thing that we make the mistake on in thinking, I'm doing it right, you're doing it wrong, 
or I'm doing it wrong, you're doing it right. And there is no such thing as one person's crying too much, one person's crying too little. You're crying or not crying just right for you. And the thing is, and I had to work on this too, even with friends, you know, after you've had a loss, there's the people that like show up in the first 24 hours and they're in the deep, horrific pain. Mm -hmm. Then there's the people who help you plan. They're the planners. They're going to help you. Then there's the people who just show up for the funeral. Then there's the people who, you know, they were your tennis chum. They were your bingo partner. And they're like, let me know when you go to play bingo again or want to play tennis. And it's easy to look and go, wait, where'd all those people who were first here? Where did they disappear to? And, and where's my planners? And and wait, well, what about my tennis player friends? Why aren't they having deep talks with me? But to realize everyone plays different notes. And instead of looking at why isn't everyone doing the same thing? Wow, I'm glad some are planners. I'm glad when I'm just so tired of all my feelings, someone wants to just take me out and play tennis and not talk. So it's so important. So important. And I think we can often feel like everyone drops away. And why isn't everyone, you know, showing up for me in the way that I feel that they should and, and crowding around me all the time and dropping off care packages. And I think exactly to your point, everyone plays different notes and your support system. Everyone plays a different role. Don't be quick to dismiss someone just because they aren't necessarily showing up for you in the way that they might have done in the early days, they still play a role in your life. And I think we sort of sometimes need to just remember that. Otherwise we can kind of, I think, isolate ourselves in a way if we're judging everyone on how we think they should be showing up for us. Right, and I have friends who, you know, we all have friends who are activity, you know, we don't realize we have activity-based friends and personal-based friends. You know, activity-based friends are the ones that like we share that hobby so we're going to go do that hobby together. And then the personal ones are the ones that you're like, Sal, let's get together. And you're like, okay, David, we're like, what do we want to do? I don't know. I just want to hang out with you. The activity doesn't matter. It's about being together and let's have those talks and let's catch up. You know, then we're in grief and we think the tennis player should be the deep talker and they were never the deep talker to begin with. David, a topic that comes up a lot in our community is how complicated grief can be when we have an estranged relationship with the person who died. How does having an estranged relationship with the person impact the way that we grieve? Well, it does impact because we have one of the happily ever after illusions is that if we have an argument or have a disagreement, there's always going to be time to someday get together. They'll see their part. We'll eventually talk. We'll work it out. Then death happens. And that moment never came. And the illusion of, oh, we're going to get to finish our business and do it all, you realize is an illusion. So it becomes challenging that the apology didn't get to happen. The words didn't get to be said. The phone call never got to be made. So that really challenges us. What are some helpful ways that people can sort of make peace with, with those sorts of things? So in those situations, one, I say to people, if you have something sincere to say to them in your heart, say it and they will hear it in theirs. Two, I also talk about, you know, you have reasonably matured. Death is a maturing event. You have matured. Can you imagine wherever they are, they have matured too? So can you both maybe see this from a higher place? 
that you were arguing over a monopoly card or whatever it was that was your disagreement and to see it from a bigger place. And the third thing is what we talk about is a living amends. If maybe I didn't get to tell you I'm sorry, then a living amends would be for the rest of my life, whenever I make a mistake, I'm going to apologize quickly and say I'm sorry. And in every one of those moments, it's a living apology to the person who died. I love that. Wise words. And I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's making peace in your heart. Like you say, it doesn't have to be something grand or a big gesture. It's just a right. simple, a simple way to move forward and accept what is. I think that's, that's really powerful. Yeah, acceptance keeps coming up over and over and over, whether we like it or not. There's old always, mate, new, old there's mate always a new layer of acceptance. <laughs> oh, oh, what, what, what is acceptance? Let's. Just, <laughs> can you tell us, like, yeah, what is acceptance? People get confused and they think acceptance means you're okay with it or you like it. Acceptance means you acknowledge the reality. Mm-hmm. Yes. Acknowledge yes. the reality. And we make the mistake of thinking there's one big acceptance, like, oh my goodness, I've been searching for acceptance. I can't find it. Oh, it was in the top drawer. I looked everywhere but the top drawer. It's not <laughs> one big acceptance. There's an acceptance the moment you've got to call other friends and tell them, mm-hmm. family members. There's an acceptance when you plan their funeral, there's an acceptance when you go to their funeral. There's always different, bigger layers of acceptance for us to deal with. You know, just recently, I had five years. My son has been gone. There was the five-year mark acceptance I had to go through. Mm. I think, yeah, it, it kind of keeps coming up in different stages in your life, doesn't it? Like, I strongly remember the first time that I think that I felt some sort of acceptance, which was about 10 months after my mum had died. Mm-hmm. And I just, it was this feeling of going, okay, this has happened. I acknowledge now that this has happened and, and I will move forward now and kind of try and deal with it. But, but, but prior to that, I think my brain just couldn't even comprehend it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that makes total sense. There's a guest that we had on the podcast a few months ago that described acceptance in a way that that really resonated with me and it being like a train station that you arrive and depart from. So it's not this final, I've accepted it, you know, that's it. It's a feeling or, you know, it's something that ebbs and flows and uh, in different moments of time. Right. And to think about that, like I said, I've just dealt with accepting he's gone five years. I couldn't accept five years at one year. I couldn't have done Mm -hmm. that earlier. Mm -hmm. Like you said, I couldn't until I pulled into the five-year train station. Could I accept five years? Yeah. And then I had to like pull in and work on it. And what did that five-year mark feel like for you? Like how, how, what differences to the first year did you identify? Less illusions, less illusions that he's coming back, it didn't happen. Um, Realizing how much of the future will be without him. But also realizing my work to bring him into the future. You know, when I work with people with grief or trauma, many times they'll get stuck in the traumatic death or traumatic moment. And the work is to bring them out of the traumatic moment. But I always say, don't leave your loved ones behind. We gotta take them out of their traumatic death and bring them forward. I, um, we were talking before, I had just been uh, in the UK for my goddaughter's wedding. And my older son wasn't able to make it. And I remember thinking, and I was going to be doing a toast. I wanted to do a toast that brought my son forward, but I didn't want to at a wedding with many people who never knew my son want to have this grief discussion. But I wanted to bring him forward. 
So I, I did it by at the beginning of the toast saying, I'm so sorry my two sons could physically not be here, but they're both here in spirit. And it was a way for me to include both my sons in that wedding. And the people in the room know that one had died. They got what I meant. And the people who didn't just thought, oh, he's thinking about his sons who didn't make it. Um, then something else that we found really fascinating in your book was the topic of light and dark of grief and how in this modern age, people's grief has often been witnessed online, um, which you know, we, we are working in the grief space as well. And we have identified that. And you notice that some people like to pull hope from grief content and others like their darkness to be seen and acknowledged. And yeah, we've definitely noticed that as well. And we find this dichotomy really interesting. So why do you think some people find hopeful content unhelpful when they're grieving? Well, you know, I, and it is, as you mentioned, it's something I learned through my own social media. Um, and anyone who searches for me, you have to go to I am David Kessler because <laughs> David Kessler was already taken by the time I got there. But, you know, I would begin posting something like some days you just don't want to get out of bed, which is the dark. And people go, thanks so much. I needed to hear that. And then other days I'd go, well, the sun came up. I guess there's hope. Oh, I really needed to hear that today. And I and people will often go, like when I talk to therapists, they'll go, oh, okay, so is our job to get people from the light to the dark and the dark to the light? And I'll go, no, they're just both parts of grief. They're just both parts of grief, you know? And it just, you know, it's the grieving fully, living fully. It's interesting, I just did the Nick Cannon show and I talked to him because he was, he had shared with the world and the audience that his son had died. And one of the things he said is he goes, I am just a guy who's the light. I don't know how to do this. And I said something along the lines, you are walking through the valley, but you are still the light in the valley, but you can't not pretend you're in a valley. You can't pretend you're not in a valley. You know, there's the dark of life. There's bad things that happen. We can't sugarcoat them, but there's still light in the darkness, whether that's us or some people's hope. You know, I say one of the things that people in grief do for one another is we hold each other's hope. If you can't find your hope, that's okay. I'm holding it for you until you can find it again. And I think it kind of comes full circle back to how people grieve so differently as well. And, you know, we, we did a post recently about how, how difficult it can be hearing it never gets easier when you're having one of those really griefy days. And there were people that came out and said, actually, I, I find that really helpful to hear that. And some people just, yeah, just polar opposite opinions on what helps people. And it's just so, it's so fascinating. Right, right. so true, very true. All of us are so different. Yeah. And David, last question from us. It has been such a pleasure to talk to you. And I feel like I personally have learned so much in this conversation. So thank you. But I'd really like to know, what does good morning mean to you? It means authentically grieving. It's authentically feeling your feelings. You're hopeful, feel hopeful. You're sad, feel sad. You're numb, be numb. It's just being the authentic you. Amazing yes. answer. Honor Love where that. you're at. And that is something that we both we both try to let people know. It's okay to just be where you are. Grieve authentically. <laughs> yeah, you know, I always talk about, you know, you come from a long line of dead people. I mean, you know, this is an <laughs> organic process. We're built to take a number of hits this lifetime and it's in our DNA. We, we know how to do this. Mm -hmm. David Kessler, thank you so much for your time. The godfather of grief. It's been You've lived up to it. Short of a pleasure. <laughs> <I> know, <right. laughs> it's been so 
lovely to talk to you. Um, and yeah, just, I really think that a lot of our listeners are going to take so much away from this chat. So thank you so much. Uh, well, I miss being there with everyone and I can't wait to be down under again and seeing all my friends there. Yes. Let us know when you come back as well. Come to Vivid. Absolutely. <laughs> I will. I will. Yeah. It was so nice to chat with you. Thank both of you. I loved that conversation and I love to take on what good morning means. How good was it? Authentic grieving. That's a bit of us, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. And honoring where you are at, guys. Um, that is up there with one of my favorite conversations and to date. Hope you enjoyed it. Yeah. And also, if you haven't heard, we are dropping some very exciting grief affirmation cards soon so keep an eye out guys it's going to be in a few weeks time um keep an eye out on our instagram and on our website and you'll be the first to know affirmations really helped us during well have really helped us during our grief so we wanted to create something that would be able to help you guys every day just a little bit of extra support and we've been working on them for about a year now haven't we very exciting so a really really special project there's a limited run um so we can't wait to bring them to you but keep your yeah keep your eyes peeled for them and if you guys are needing a little bit of extra support in your grief don't forget we've set up a private facebook community group for you it's called good morning grief community and you can chat with each other there and share memories and thoughts about your loved one or ask questions about your grief and yeah we'll see you next time guys